running out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Hello to the tribe of love listening to today's broadcast of Talk Out of School. Bienvenidos a todos. Bienvenidos mi familia. Welcome to my family, WBAI listeners. My name is Daniel Alicea. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I'm the proud son of Manny and Alma. I welcome you again today to another episode of Talk Out of School. I'm coming to you live once more on WBAI listener-sponsored, locally controlled, non-commercial Pacifica Radio in New York City. We're on 99.5 FM, and again, this is a Pacifica Radio station. We're also being live-streamed via WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we focus on the issues affecting public schools and public education here in New York City on the state level, and nationally. We have a special show lined up for you. If you've been following the narrative thread of our latest broadcasts here at Talk Out of School, you know that as part of my role as a New York City teacher, um, we have decided that it's going to be really, really important for us to really think about how the pandemic has, has affected us. And so we're in the midst of a series of episodes where we are showcasing the voices of New York City educators from different paths, different walks of life, different um, skill sets. And as part of the ongoing conversation that we have at Talk Out of School, I think it's important that we listen to these educators of New York City public schools and hear their perspectives about the challenges and the opportunities that this pandemic has afforded us. And so today we have an interview with Noah Tichi. He is a five-year music teacher at Urban Assembly School for Applied Math and Science. It is a 6 through 12 school, and he has launched a new podcast called Professional Development. It's geared towards New York City educators and the issues that we are facing here at New York City schools. And it's really part of a burgeoning new lineup of city educator podcasters that have taken to the airwaves especially after the pandemic, to share our stories and viewpoints uh, within New York City schools. And also, we will share an interview with Arlene Laverde. She is a New York City librarian at Townsend Harris in Queens. She is also the president-elect of the New York Association of Librarians. And she's going to share with us some of the challenges that school librarians and school libraries are currently experiencing in New York City public schools. Here's my interview with Noah Tichi, recorded yesterday. I'm here with Noah Tichi. He is a New York City music teacher who hosts a rock star podcast <laughs> called Professional Development. It's for New York City educators and any of those of us that are interested in the ins and outs of New York City schools. Welcome, Noah. Thank you, Daniel. Happy to be here. So, Noah, I, I know that um, 
you're originally not from the city, but uh, you've been teaching here for about five years as a music teacher. Tell us a little bit about your entree into New York City schools. Sure. Uh, well, I I came to New York for grad school um, and stayed. Uh, <laughs> I finished up my degree and and had already started looking for positions uh, before I graduated. I, I did the early hire uh, program in the Bronx and uh, was in a position in April, um, not actually working, but had had already sort of um, made arrangements to start in September. Uh, and from there, I've just still been in the same spot. And I understand you're, you're at a grade six to 12 school teaching music. Um, New York City, especially after the Bloomberg years, has, has struggled with its music programs here in the city. Can you tell me a little bit about um, some of your challenges, especially during the pandemic as a music teacher here in New York City? Certainly. Uh, Well, so I wasn't here before the Bloomberg years, um, but just from a a programmatic standpoint, um, it, the small schools movement might have accomplished some things, but uh, as far as programming goes, like any, anything that requires a lot of students to be around uh it, it sort of got the short end uh when it came to uh the small schools movement um so i yeah like i said i i have only been here in the post bloomberg years but what i find to be difficult uh both pre and post pandemic is this um if you're looking for students to to help you build a program right to to um sort of be your uh to, to be the engine that keeps a program running uh, with a smaller pool of students. It's really hard to, hard to do that. Um, and then the, the pandemic exacerbated all of the difficulties that were already there. So, you know, we're a small school, uh, one music teacher, basically a, a general music program um, because it's one music teacher teaching about 200 students per semester uh, and so any, any sort of like big programming that you want to do is it, it's really tricky because the students who are in the classes, um, generally don't elect to, to be there. So trying to, to make something that's interesting to them and is also accessible to a complete beginner because you never know who you're going to have from semester to semester. It's, uh, it's tricky. That buy-in's got to be really difficult, especially I know, you know, part of that is really the celebrations that happen as part of a, a music program. And when it's a smaller school, a lot more difficult. Um, a little bit, let's zoom in a little bit about teaching remotely during the pandemic as a music teacher. It's got to be especially challenging. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, so I'm, I'm an instrumentalist. That's how I, that's how I came to music. I was in a, a sixth grade uh, string orchestra program. That's how I, that's how I got my start. My, um, I had a, a phenomenal teacher and, uh, my my buy-in was was you know there from the beginning and and has been there since then. I've you know I've been going to rehearsal ever since uh, <laughs> sixth grade. So, um, so that's that's a totally different um that 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 is a situation. The situation that I had in sixth grade is not replicable in a remote teaching environment. You know, I I really needed some some hands-on instruction when I was picking up the violin. And so my teaching approach, anything that was sort of that, that has grown out of that experience that I had as, as a student, 
I've had to find a, a, a way of, of sort of uh, tweaking or, or find a different way of, of bringing to the students. And what I, what I found early in the pandemic um, was that my, the, the music production programming that I had put together uh, as a, a response to student interest um, in my first couple of years of teaching became the, the focal point of my remote instruction. Um, and so all last year when we were hybrid and from, you know, March, 2020 on, uh, when we were remote, um, that has, the, the music production was what I really leaned into. And that was, um, honestly the, what got me into doing the podcast too, was I had picked up all of this information about music production, something I had never really had that much interest in prior to, uh, starting to do it for school. Um, and then I, I had the, the, a little bit of time. And so I was like, let's, let's try something that I couldn't have done before, but is, um, something I, I can do now, uh, with the skill set that I put together, uh, just so that I could turn key it over to the kids. So that's a, that's a pretty good segue for us to talk about professional development. I know the podcast started in the fall of last year can you tell us a little bit about how, um, I guess you've told us how it, it's come about, but your, your vision for professional development, um, some of the challenges you had early on, especially with um, just, you know, launching. It's, it's always hard to launch. A little yeah. bit about your, your, your show, uh, Professional Development. I'm, I'm loving some of the, the products that are coming out. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh the start was, was certainly the, the most difficult part because I, I, in the beginning needed to sort of figure out my workflow and, um, podcasting as a teacher, it, really doing anything as a teacher, uh, is difficult, uh, even teaching because <laughs> you, you have to sort of figure out how to make your, get the most out of your time, uh, when you're not in the building and, and, um, when you're not, having to sleep to recover so that you can go back into the building. Uh, so the first couple of episodes, uh, were, were really very time consuming. And so I realized I needed to streamline my workflow a little bit. And, uh, the first couple of episodes were, were just solo. Like I, I didn't have any guests until episode five. I convinced a couple of colleagues of mine to come on. Um, so generating a whole lot of stuff to talk about, um, and, and scripting it in such a way as to make it relatable and, and interesting, uh, but also informative. Um, cause that, that was really the, the idea behind the show. Like I, I didn't want to just get on mic and talk. I, I wanted to, uh, provide an audience with, uh, answers to questions that a lot of teachers have, um, and not just teachers, like a lot of any stakeholder in, in schools, uh, has questions and has a really hard time finding answers to those questions for a number of reasons. I, sometimes I, I think that the answers are purposely kind of um, hidden away. And other times I, I think we just have some really outdated means of communication uh, in, in the department of education. So uh, yeah, building a show that would be relatable, interesting uh, and, and answer some questions that, that people might have. That's what I was going for. So it's gotta be really hard without guests. Um, <laughs> yeah. you talking for an hour. Uh, so 
some of you, some of you, the most interesting guests that you've had on the show, you want, you want to share some of those? Certainly. Yeah. I, I've had, I've been really lucky to, to have, um, especially recently as I've been getting into, uh, sort of the preparation for the UFT elections, I've had, uh, a, a couple of candidates for positions and in, in the, specifically on the executive board of the, of the UFT. Um, so, uh, Alex Jalot and, uh, Nick Bacon came on in, in pretty quick succession. And, and so I was able to personally learn a lot about sort of what's at stake with the UFT elections, but also then relate that to whoever's listening. Um, and more people started listening when I started covering that stuff. So I, I think that there were a lot of people who wanted to know more. Uh, and so I was happy to, to be able to, sort of package that information in a, in a way that is um, approachable for, for a lot of people. I, I, I do a lot of the, the producing of the show uh, as thinking in terms of a, a listener, like I, I'm a music teacher. I, my ears are, are the best way of getting through to me. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm a very slow reader. I, I find I have a really hard time sitting down and, and reading the stuff that I should be reading in order to, to be informed and that sort of thing. So I, I'm thinking about, uh, other people like me, um, in particular, when I'm putting together the shows, like, how do I make, uh, something that, that someone like me is going to be able to, to pick up and and benefit from, but you know, other people not like me too. Um, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, they were, they were great. They, were very engaging. I also had, um, so Norm Scott came on. He might've been my most recent guest. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And then this most recent was a, no, that's not true. Uh, Tyree Alexander is a, a colleague of mine and, and he had a, a just a, a really feel good story, uh, <laughs> to share about this award that he had won recently in this program that, that he had built. Um, so I highly recommend that for anybody who's looking for, just a, a purely feel good, uh, listen, if someone who's looking for a little inspiration, uh, that he was great. Um, and Norm Scott, uh, fantastic storyteller, very engaging guy, um, Absolutely. told us about what was going on with the retiree healthcare, uh, and, and the UFT. And, um, so if you haven't heard that for anybody listening, highly recommend it. So where, where do you see professional development going from here? moving forward that is a great question it it my through line i think i've maintained a, a pretty decent through line throughout all of the shows um and i'm hoping i can keep that going uh because i i think that if i were to to branch out too far in one direction or another uh people might start to um you know lose interest uh depending on what they came to the show for um, but I, I think the, the main idea is getting this information that, that is not so easily, uh, found, um, getting this information out to stakeholders for whom it is important. So teachers, parents, uh, maybe even students. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think more guests, anybody who, who has something interesting to share about, um, about schools or interesting things to share about their own practice is, is, uh, something I'm trying to, to loop back into now that we've gotten, uh, some of the, 
the politics around teaching uh, out there. You know, I want to keep spiraling around and and finding the interesting morsels that are out there and and um, package them up so people can can hear them. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm hearing that there's a lot of uh, issues that you as a teacher in New York city schools um, you're learning about. I know I, through this show, I've, I've learned quite a bit. It, 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 there's, there's a learning curve. And at the same time, there's a lot of studying that, that sometimes we, we do just as a New York city teacher. What do you think the future holds for our profession for New York city schools? What are some things that are really on your mind? Um, even if they're things that are bothering you as a New York city teacher. Yeah. I, I think that we, if, if we're not already right in the middle of a fight that we don't know we're in, um, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to become much clearer that we've actually been engaged in a, a, a very serious battle uh, for the, the status of the profession um, for the, value that we're able to provide to students for the the place that education has in in our society um i think looking around at my school uh i and and you know looking around at all of my colleagues from throughout the the department of education i i think sometimes uh it it sort of like dawns on us momentarily like oh wait yeah we're there are a lot of people who don't want us to be able to do this properly. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't want us to have the materials that we need, who, who don't want us to, to have the um, sort of the emotional resources that we need in order to do a good job. And, and they are purposely making our jobs more difficult. Um, there are people who want to privatize education. And if they, if they can't get us to, to leave, of our own free will, uh, then they're going to just make our jobs more difficult until we don't have a choice and we have to leave. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, once the privatization effort has, has finally won out, uh, we, they'll hire us back, but for, for less pay, for less control over what we're, what we're doing. Um, and, uh, and, and it'll be a really sad day. So I, I think we're right in the middle of that. And, um, I, you know, with the discussion around raising the charter cap and, um, and, and all these other really nefarious things that are right in front of us, they're just like not always worded in, in the terms that, that would make clear how, how scary the situation is. Um, it's, yeah, it's happening right in the middle of it. Absolutely. Very agendized. Um, yeah. I, I teach at a co-located school and I, I'm hearing a lot of the things I think that, that you might be struggling with. It's a small school as well. Are, are you guys co-located? We are. Well, we are co-located, but with two other public schools. Okay. And even like that, there's, there's a lot of challenges that come with that. Uh, yeah. Just coordinating the, the school day. Absolutely. I've got to imagine even as a music teacher, you've got to have a space. Do you guys share that space as well? We just have my room. Uh, and I, I've heard rumors that there is a small auditorium located somewhere in the building. But um, but I, as far as I know, the only places that, that my groups can perform are in my room or in a 
like a we we have a an, a sort of atrium space that works, but it's really not it's not ideal. Acoustically, it is uh, not where you want to be performing. Absolutely mind boggling that you said that there's there's possibly a space or a small auditorium. <laughs> That's one thing that folks just don't understand about the co-location set. The access to building space that really should be accessible to all the children in that neighborhood um, and to the community itself. And just to hear you say, oh, there's a small rumor uh, that there is a small space there. Noah, thank you so much for sharing uh, about your experience as a, as a teacher today and also about professional development. Give us one last plug about uh, professional development, your podcast. Absolutely. Uh, so professional development, the New York City teacher podcast can be found wherever you do your podcast listening. Um, I, you know, I probably shouldn't have called it professional development because I get sort of buried in the results. But if you look up the show and any any other identifying uh, information about it, like NYC or teacher or Noah Tichy, uh, you'll find us. And uh, one last thing, I had my first one star review on Apple Podcasts the other day, which I took to be a great, uh, like a really exciting thing because it means that the show is finding people who are not looking for it. Uh, so I think we're at the start of something great. But if you enjoy it, um, <laughs> help us out and, uh, and, and give us a, a five star, eh, four star, three star, whatever, just not a one star review. Uh, and that, that would be very helpful for the uh, algorithm, I guess. Thanks. Thank you so much, Noah. You're listening to Talk Out of School on listener-sponsored WBAI 99.5. We're found on the center of your FM dial. I'm Daniel Alisea, a New York City educator, and I'm alternating on weekends with my co-host, Lainey Hameson. Today we are sharing the stories of various New York City educators, such as Arlene Laverde, a New York City high school librarian, and the president-elect of the New York Librarian Librarians Association. And you just heard Noah Tichy, a New York City music teacher, that has just launched a hot new podcast show called Professional Development that you can find on your favorite podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And both are sharing some of the present challenges and opportunities that educators here in New York City are facing, especially in the last two years of the COVID pandemic in New York City public schools. I'm with Arlene Laverde. She is a librarian in the Department of Education. She is a librarian over at Townsend Harris. She is a 16-year veteran, and she is also the president-elect of the New York Librarian Association. Did I get that right, Arlene? That is correct. Um, one thing is before, um, well, I'm a 16-year vet as a librarian, I am a 31-year vet of the New York City Department of Education. Oh, wow. Um, before I became a librarian, I was an elementary classroom teacher for six, 15, 16 years. It's kind of hard. It all kind of mushes together as the time has gone on. But come Ju uh, June of this year, I will have completed 31 years. So there's, there's a lot of misconceptions <laughs> as to the role of librarians. Tell tell our, our listeners, what is the role of a librarian, especially in New York City schools? And there's a lot of myths and misconceptions out there. Maybe you can help dispel some of them as you describe your role. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Like, I first, 
first and foremost, there's, there's really two stereotype librarians, right? Um, and and for a school librarian, most often the librarian stereotype is that really cranky, I want to say, librarian who's always, you know, wants a silent library, um, kind of um, Madam Pince from Harry Potter is the best image that I have, like, don't touch the books, keep the books nice and clean. The library is a place for quiet and so on. And unfortunately, that myth is perpetuated often in media, basically because it's just a trope, right? And it, it pushes sometimes characters forward in a TV show or a movie. But in reality, school librarians are really, I want to say fun people, right? We are there for a whole lot of different reasons. We're there to assist everyone in the school community. We are there to help our students, to help our teachers, to help our administration in the pursuit of research, in the pursuit of learning. And it really kind of depends what level of library you're working in and what what capacity the librarian's job is, right? An elementary school librarian looks very different than um, a secondary school librarian, middle or high school. But our job, we first and foremost, we are all teachers. And that's something that people forget throughout the DOE, parents, and even, you know, students. And it's one of the most things that... Um, how do I say this? Um, people tell me, and I don't think they realize how insulting they are when they say it. They're like, oh, what? you're a teacher? Like, it's like this, it's like unheard of. And yes, New York State school librarians, New York City school librarians are absolutely 100% certified New York State teachers. And that is the, our primary job, whether it's we're teaching a whole class instruction we're teaching teachers how to use materials or if we're teaching students individually, our job is to instruct. So that is probably the biggest misconception that people have that I want dispelled, that our job is to teach people and to teach people a variety of things. Are there any other misconceptions, especially coming from on top, from administration, the DOE, as to what your, your role should be in schools, do you think? Um, yes, absolutely. I think one of the bigger problems that comes from administration, uh, in my experience, I'm very lucky where I am at Townsend Harris that the, the administration and I are, are speak constantly. So they know what my role is. They know what I'm doing in the library, and they're very supportive. But I have worked in other schools where the administration doesn't know what my job is. Like, they, you know, the English teacher is to teach this curriculum. The math teacher is to teach this curriculum. But the librarian, we usually don't have um, classes that are set for us. We rely on, especially in the secondary school, we rely on collaboration with the other teachers in order to, you know, instruct students. So administration doesn't know what our job entails. So a lot of times they don't think we're doing anything or they don't necessarily assist us in what we need assistance with, that they don't encourage. I have 
talked to a lot excuse me i've talked to principals in the past principals who've been my friends personally and one of the things i plug all the time is where's your library what's your library doing and one of my good friends was like oh we the librarian retired we never hired anybody else because she didn't do anything she didn't um we don't need to pay someone to just sit in the library and it's like if your english teacher is not doing what they're supposed to be doing as administration your job is to help and support that english teacher to do their job it is imperative that the um the administration knows what the librarian is doing so that they hold the librarian in the position accountable for the job not that oh uh, you know we don't need to hire one because they're not doing anything librarians provide valuable education to our students they provide valuable um materials to our students valuable supports to our teachers and if you know overall in the new york city doe in education throughout you know the united states you're going to have one or two people who don't do what they're supposed to do and that can be in the library that can be in the english department that could be in the phys ed department we all worked in schools where we're like wow this person got away with x y and z in the library when somebody and i i've told this to people who i've worked with and i i'm also an adjunct at queens college where i instruct future librarians and i tell them do not be the librarian that gets a library closed you need to be vocal and you need to be a part of that school community so that your principal sees your value it is also important that the doe and the principals and the administration talk to um like school library service services which is an office within the doe to find out what their librarians are supposed to be doing if they don't know what they're supposed to be doing right the librarian is more than just here's a book and read and shushing kids in the library it's it's such a dynamic position that it's important that they know higher ups know exactly what our job is to, uh, entails how you what i i've been in the doe for quite a, a period of time myself i i started teaching in 1997 and back then middle schools were not co-located there were another schools in the building and you know you had your your middle schools that had ran 13 1400 kids and you had a full array of librarian services um a, a library that was functional dynamic as you said and i i recall that that librarian just being on top of it and really really being a, an integral part of our school community mm-hmm. then i i moved to houston in 2006 i taught at a title 1 school there and i saw the same thing a, a librarian that was so important and vital to our school community then i came back in 2014 right and i saw the aftermath of bloomberg and the bloomberg right. years mm-hmm. and got a job at a co-located school and essentially the library was pretty much defunct by the time i got there and even now there is no functional library or librarian so i'm mm-hmm. i'm interested maybe you can fill in the gaps for me um 
pre-pandemic in the recent years, decade or so, what are some of the challenges we are seeing with school libraries um, in the DOE? What were some of the challenges that you saw pre-pandemic? Right. So pre-pandemic, let's, uh, I'll even go pre-pre-pandemic, Bloomberg years and on, there became this, I don't know what happened during the Bloomberg years. It's kind of like this big blur where all of a sudden schools were thought to be able to be run like big business, you know, and in reality, the profits of a school are your students, right? Your school, schools are not designed to make money. The profits are how successful and productive members of society that the school produces to, to bring back to the community, right? When the Bloomberg years came in and the budget cuts when were slashed, most, many schools, I don't want to say most, that's unfair. Many schools started cutting positions that were considered non-essential like the arts programs, the music programs, and the library programs, which to me personally is mind-boggling, right? We want college and career-ready students, and we're not going to make them well-rounded people with the arts. We're going to cut the arts program for I don't know what reason. We're going to suck all the enjoyment out of school just there. And then we're going to cut the library programs because I don't know why. You know, and I think it's more because people didn't know what libraries and librarians do and how libraries and librarians support education, right? So what happened was, was libraries started getting cut, librarians started getting cut, and state mandates were ignored, and there were no repercussions, right? No one was being held accountable for the fact that the New York state law states Every school is supposed to have a library and every school is supposed, every secondary school is supposed to have a functioning library with a certified librarian. Now principals are not funding librarians and they're also not funding libraries and there's no, no accountability, right? No one is telling, sanctioning these schools. No one is sanctioning the DOE and they're getting away with it. So they're doing it more and more and more. And then what ends up happening is that there are no jobs, so people don't go to library school to become certified librarians. So now that when the DOE starts looking, they're like, there are no libraries to hire, so we can't hire it. And it's like this really vicious circle. And it's something that parents should be screaming about, that there are no you know, the arts program and the music program, but they should be screaming about that there's no library program within their school. If you look at the top high schools in New York City, the Stuyvesant, um, Brooklyn Tech, Bronx Science, Townsend Harris High School, they all have fully funded functioning libraries with certified school librarians. These are gifted and talented, talented schools, schools where we send our, stop, our, our top children. Why, why do we have libraries and not everybody have libraries? What, you know, it's no secret that they have libraries. It's no secret that these kids, that they are going into these schools are, you know, high-performing students, right? We should all be screaming that every school should be funded and have the same programs that these gifted and talented schools have. Matter of equity, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So the pandemic brought a whole new set of issues for, for all educators. Mm-hmm. What challenges have, have librarians um, faced, especially during uh, the pandemic years, the early pandemic in 220, 221, and even now? Um, what are some yes. of the challenges? So before the pandemic hit, one of our issues was budget, right? No money. And school library budgets got $6.25 per child as of the October 31st budget of the previous year, $6.25 per child for library books. And that was it. So depending how big your school was, um, at Townsend Harris High School, my state budget was around six or $7,000, right? Because we had 1,000 students, so on. But the 338 money, it was called, could only be used to purchase physical books, no electronic materials, physical books. Now, fast forward, um, March of 2020, we New York City shuts down, right? New York City shuts down. Um, I personally was shocked that New York City shut down. Um, but now we're trying to help do a shift for our schools to get our schools online functioning with uh, instruction. I can say in our library community, in the New York City school library community, the schools that had functioning libraries with functioning certified school librarians that were a part of the New York City school library system had an easier shift because the New York City school librarians are a part of a listserv. And on this listserv, pre-shutdown, like the week, the week, two weeks before the shutdown, we were already sharing resources. We were already sharing digital tools that we put together to share with each other that when the school shut down a week before, we were already sending out materials to our communities, right? I sent my principal, the APs, and all of the teachers in the building links to uh, things like Snagit and Loom, which are digital video recording before we had access to Zoom, ways to record lectures, um, virtual field trips, places where we can find um, e-books and audio books for free online, right? Because with Pre-pandemic, we weren't able to make a collection of electronic books because we didn't have the money for it. Now we have no books for the students because everything is remote. So we we work together as a team to try and make sure that learning went on and we tried to make it as seamless as possible as the world was burning around us. And we did, the school librarians of New York City did a really good job. You know, we we were there for each other, helping each other. One of the harder things for me personally as a school librarian in a high school is that since I was remote with everybody else and I did not have a set of classes that I met with daily, finding the collaboration with the children and with the teachers was a little bit more difficult because I didn't want to overwhelm teachers and I didn't want to overwhelm students with emails because we were already stressed out. So I wanted to stay visible to the community, but I didn't want to bombard them 
with too much stuff at once and have them say, oh, it's Mrs. Laverty again. I'm just going to delete her emails. Tell you what, um, one thing I've, I have noticed about librarians that they are legitimately the IT experts at our schools. And I'm sure that they benefited from a lot of the resources that you shared. So moving forward, um, the pandemic has brought a lot of challenges to New York City schools. And you've brought up a lot of issues that li- school libraries are facing and issues that families need to know about. What are some improvements that you think we need to start working together um, as educators, as New York City families, as citizens of the city? What are some things that we need to start pushing for when it comes to our school libraries in New York City schools? We really need to push for a librarian in every school, right? Every school is supposed to have a library, but in reality, a library without a school librarian, without a certified school librarian is really just a room with books, right? If there's no one there to help promote the books, to help promote research, to to facilitate instruction, to collaborate with teachers, it's just a room with books that just going to collect dust. You have the, um, you know, oh, we can get parent volunteers to check books in and out. I will be 100% honest with you. Circulation of the books in my school library is important, but I don't circulate the books. I have a school aide. Fortunately, I have a school aide that helps me do that. I have student volunteers who help me circulate books. My job is instruction, plain and simple. You know, do I circulate books? Absolutely. But I'm also there to book talk books to kids, promote reading, promote literacy, We want our children to be lifelong readers and lifelong learners. But if you don't have someone in the library with helping them to see that, we we are losing a huge avenue. You know, the library is a place where exploration takes place. We have maker spaces. We are a place for social and um, emotional well-being. We, you know... I can point in different directions, different libraries and different librarians with different programming. I know there's a librarian who runs um, mindfulness in their library. They have um, yoga, poetry readings, poetry slams, all kinds of different activities that go on in the library. We've had author visits. These are things that people don't know and they need to know that these things take place. I know librarians who do career, college and career programs, college and career research for kids so that, you know, it's time, It this is crunch times. High school seniors now are starting to get their acceptances. High school juniors are now starting to explore and our librarians are helping them to explore things for their future. The librarians are also there to help kids take a step and breathe. Because we are one place that's safe for them, that when when they come to us for help, they're going to get the help. They're going to get the help without judgment. No one's going to say, um, you have to do homework. No one's going to say, why why'd you leave this for the last second? Because the majority of the librarians are like, okay, we're here to help you. How can we help you? Um, it is all about knowing all of the different services that uh, school librarians can provide, right? If we don't tell the administration 
the higher ups in the DOE, the superintendents, the principals who don't have school librarians, what these librarians um, are capable of, they're not going to hire. But we also really need for our parents to understand what school libraries do and how they support everyone in the community, from the children to the children's parents, to the teachers, to the admin, everyone in the school community is in influenced and impacted by the school library. Tell you what, as a, a student of uh, New York City schools, uh, one of the oasis that I knew I could go to was my school library. Um, whether it we whether it was a Queens Public Library or just my school library, it was one place, and definitely I can see that aspect, that social emotional aspect Absolutely. that you're talking about. Um, final question about the needs. I know that in a, in a previous conversation we had, um, the role of school libraries, especially in elementary school, did you want to touch on that? Absolutely, right. I'm a high school librarian in one of the best, if not, I think it's the best high school in New York, according to U.S. News. Um, at least last year. It's a really great school with really great kids, work really hard. One of the things that I've noticed, even within Townsend Harris community, when it comes down to researching and research skills, many of the students learn pretty quick at Townsend Harris and they have a really great work ethic, but they come in not having research skills that they should have learned in elementary and middle school, right? It's kind of like getting them in Townsend Harris High School in AP Lit and they never took a reading class. It's like here, you're going to do research and you're going to do college level research in your high school. And you're gonna do, even if you're doing high school level research in your high school, you're expected to know how certain skills, right? how to formulate research questions, how to search a database. In a high school, we are not only teaching them the high school skills that they need to know and to use into college. We have to now go back and teach skills that they needed in elementary and middle school that they needed to learn, right? In an elementary school library, element, elementary school children and middle school children of voracious readers. They're ver that's when they read, right? That's when they still love books. That's when um, teaching, reading didn't like, education didn't kill the joy of reading. With a school librarian, we can take that joy of reading and multiply it by a thousand and continue the love of reading throughout so that when they get to high school, they still have the love of reading. They still want to read. Librarians are there to help build diverse collections for the school library. It is so important that children see themselves and their community within the pages of the books that they read, right? It is important that they see their families represented, that they see Black children Hispanic children, Asian children, just living lives because it is during reading when children learn empathy. And then in these books, they can learn to empathize and see how 
my Asian friends, my black friends, they have families like I do. They have friends like I do. They have the same issues. They have different issues, but we can all be together and we can all be understanding. And that is one of the main focuses of a school librarian, to make sure that diversity, to make sure that representation happens, to make it a safe place to have these conversations about about literature, about themselves. Well, thank you so much, uh, Arlene. I, I'm so glad we had this conversation. Part of um, Talk Out of School in the last few weeks, we've been trying to get educators from different uh, walks and, and paths. And I, I really feel like there's so much more that we can discuss. Thank you so much for your time, um, Arlene. And um, we're, we're going to be fighting for a library in every school. I hope so. Thank you so much for listening to me. It, libraries are my passion. And honestly, every child in New York City, every child in New York State, and every child across the country deserves to, de- deserves to have a school library with a school librarian. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mi Familia, for joining me today on Talk Out of School. Thank you to my guests, Arlene Laverde and Noah Tichi. This is Daniel Alisea, your co-host at Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Our show, Talk Out of School, is also available as a podcast if you missed any part of today's broadcast or would like to search our archives. You can find us on Apple or Spotify. Just go to their platform, type in Talk Out of School, and we'll come right up. Also, please leave us a glowing review. Please consider becoming a WBAI buddy. As a WBAI buddy, you become a special supporter of WBAI and this show, Talk Out of School. You can do that by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. And make sure to mention our show when you make your donation. Or you can go to WBAI.org and just find the button that says BAI Buddy. This month is Women's History Month and WBAI has a special offer for you. Today, if you partner with us as a BAI Buddy, when you go to your internet browser, I want you to type in woman.wbai.org. Org, so that you can make a commitment today to become a $15 or more monthly supporter of BAI. If you do that, you will get access to a one gigabyte inspirational collection of audio clips of some of the most legendary great women of the last century. And that's part of an offer that we have for you today at WBAI, we are calling it the Women's History Audio Collection. Our Women's History Audio Collection contains 79 hours of recordings showcasing women's history through restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. This thorough compilation is called from over six seasons of Pacifica Radio's radio archives, our weekly radio programs from our vault and even beyond. And wait, there's even more. 
you'll receive a WBAI tote bag with your WBAI sustaining membership of $15 a month or more. And I would like to play for you one of these clips from this audio collection that is yours with your $15 or more donation to um, WBAI. This clip is the legendary Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. Let's listen to her. You're tuned to listener-sponsored WBAI in New York with a moment in women's history. Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman in Congress, and in 1972, she became the first woman and first black American to seek the nomination for president of the United States from one of the two major parties. I am a woman with abilities, intelligence, and with depth. That is the sadness about this country, and that's why I made my mind up I was going to stay in this race, come thick or thin, and I was going to go all the way to Miami, because even though the papers have been underscoring me, even though every, many people have been saying, well, she can't be serious, they're going to see me in action at the National Convention, and I mean this, I am committed to this, as an instrument of people in this country who've been left out, an instrument of people whose counsel and advice has never been sought in terms of putting a ticket together, only using the people every four years for their votes. I look at all of these distinguished senators telling all of the people what they're going to do for women, what they're going to do for blacks, what they're going to do for Chicanos, what they're going to do for this group and the other group. Well, darn it, they've been in the United States Senate for 10 or more years. If they had a concern about the American Indian, they would have done something already about the miserable living conditions that those Indians live on in terms of the reservations where 70% of them don't live to see the age of 40. They don't have a concern about women. They don't have a concern about the conservation and preservation of human resources. They're only interested in these human resources every four years when it's time to go out and get the vote. And that's why when people say, well, what makes you so different from all the rest of them? I said, I am different because I have a gut commitment to people, first of all. All of the rest of them have commitment to different interest groups, financial groups, power groups. I'm espoused only by a lot of folks in the country who told me they didn't want to vote between the less of the two evils anymore. They wanted to give their vote to somebody that they knew deep down within themselves had a commitment to people. And for whatever that vote would mean, at least it would give me that much more added strength that I need when I get to the convention. Chisholm retired from Congress after serving seven terms. In 1983, she said she wanted to be remembered as a woman who dared to be a catalyst for change. You can receive our Women's History audio collection with Shirley Chisholm and other trailblazers by becoming a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member for $15 a month. You'll also receive our fabulous tote bag. Please go to women.wbai.org. Again, that's women.wbai.org to become a buddy in the name of your favorite program. Or call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, and say, yes, certainly, I want to become a WBAI buddy this Women's History Month. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Talk Out of School. This is Daniel Alisea. And to the, the tribe of love, remember, love always wins. <laughs>